Aren't you lucky you don't carry a big uh, camera or something? Or have you? Of all the cases that I've been involved in in nearly 30 years, the scientific evidence in the Foy case was the most interesting. At times it was like as if you were watching the Discovery Channel. Here's a fresh new seedling. And I don't know whether to protect it or destroy it because it could be a nice new hybrid plant. That's hardy and everything, you know. There was a biological condition where one's outward appearance wouldn't necessarily be congruent with how you perceived yourself. That's Bill Shipsy, a barrister. Look, they're just weeds. What is a weed? A weed is a plant you don't want for some reason. But a philosophical question. And this is Lydia Foy, his client. I mean, sex and whatever else doesn't really come into your area as a baby if you get your cuddles and your food and warmth and fed or whatever, that's it. But it certainly was clear from the outset that Lydia Foy was a very serious woman, very serious about her desire to have legal recognition for what she felt in her most intimate um, self. And you play, like, do you put on a lot of music? Like, there's music playing when oh, I came in. Oh, yeah, yeah. What kind of stuff? Um, you know, and my parents were, I'm sure, quite gentle and understanding with me. And and it was also clear that she was prepared to take the proceedings in circumstances where it was unavoidable that there was going to be a lot of publicity. Some, some lovely stuff on that. Just just see what comes out now. Mario Lanza. I mean, she, I know, suffered throughout the case by lots of sort of jeering and catcalling whenever it was publicly known who she was in, in relation to the, the type of case that she was taking. So, Bill Shipsy or someone in Dublin were sort of looking through what was going on. And he says, oh, we'll have a look at this for a review of the registration, you know, birth So he stood up in an open court and asked for leave for judicial review. There was something of a trailblazer about Lydia. And the press descended on me. And I was told I was looking for publicity and I was a sexual deviant and I was upsetting society and all hell broke loose. I didn't hear you joining in. And a very, very courageous person who was prepared to go ahead because she believed passionately in this and because also I think she believed that this would inure to the benefit of, of others in her situation. So it's only by contrast later on when you have to conform and do things that seem to be outside your emotions and everything else that you start comparing and contrasting and say why and everything else. Lydia Foy was born in 1947 in Athlone. She went to boarding school and then university and qualified as a dentist. She married and had children and settled in Athai, which is where she lives still, and where I did these interviews. Now, how about that? She lives on her own now, quietly. She's retired. She has her hobbies and interests and seems quite content. I'd be battered. I'd go into sort of uh, trances pretty much and just be ridiculed and bashed and called stupid. 
but much of her life was marked by unusual trauma. Uh, what's this they used to call me? Scatterbrain and everything else, because I'd be able to think very straight for a while and then I'd, you know, then I'd switch off, I'd be floating and flying. <laughs> when Lydia was born, she was registered as a boy. She was born with male genitalia, she was born with male chromosomes. Eventually, she had a gender reassignment operation, a sex change. But she maintained that always, she never, it wasn't what her brain told her she was. She always perceived herself as being a female. And then, for over a decade, she fought to persuade the state that when they identified her at birth as male, they were wrong. Were you always aware of it to some extent? No, I was pretty much... Well, I couldn't have expressed it, of course, but it, I was aware of just sort of being myself, and then it's very hard to put it. Yeah, I didn't have anything to test it against or to contrast it with for a couple of years. But very early on then, of course, <laughs> the, the secret world started going in and the questions and everything else started kicking in. But it was a very strict society then, so a lot of it was just kept internally, you know. And when you say very early on, what do you mean? Ah, well, I mean, as a very young kid going to school and that, you know, and big traumas at First Communion and all that. There's no point in repeating those stories, but... Um, you know, very early on, but she sort of uh, learned to escape or distract or whatever and look for answers as best you could yourself. This is Louis Goran, a Dutch doctor. We spoke on Skype. I was born in Holland in 1943, and I've been studying transsexualism for over 30 years. He's one of the world's leading experts in transsexualism. I've written most of the papers on hormonal treatment of transsexualism. And in Lydia's case, which we'll hear more about, he was an expert witness. I've developed also a legal framework to make transsexualism acceptable to legal authorities, which was relevant because uh, it's not enough to give transsexuals a new body, but they also must have a new legal identity. I couldn't have said, look, I'd like a dress. Not in a million years. You'd be ridiculed and you'd be beaten up in school. Your parents would uh, lock you up and, and uh, throw away the key, pretty much. What is your gender identity? In majority of people, it coincides with the body. It's no question. People have been born male and they feel male all their lives. But in a small group of people... It happens that they have a male body but feel themselves female. And the other way around, they have a female body and they feel themselves male. So they have a cross-gender identity. I find it just as tragic the other way around, or even more traumatic, really, if you think they had sort of very female bodies that, you know, they should have swapped the tubes at birth or something, but we're not that far advanced. Maybe some of those days they'll get them... Just switch the brains and that'll be grand. <laughs> that'll be the best way out of it, I think. <laughs> uh, the first one of those was, uh, those type of, of movies was called, I think, The Colossus of New York. It's inhuman. Inhuman. It would be inhuman to deprive the world of his genius. And this scientist was knocked down. But uh, they kept him on life support for a while and didn't know what the hell to do. Body was totally destroyed in the crash. 
fantastic are the implications of this story today. Took out the brain and built a robot around it. This story of a human mind and emotions encased in a steel colossus without a soul. That isn't just an abstract intellect. It's a brain that remembers and feels and suffers. Of course, integrating in society as a robot, you know, after having a human body was not easy, needless to say. But various advantages in strength and being waterproof and all of that sort of thing, so... <laughs> you know. I knew I wasn't allowed to be myself and that uh, couldn't tell anyone, basically. You couldn't discuss anything like that with your parents, really, even though they were very, very good to us all. And you burst into tears and you think, why can't they see what's going on or whatever? But you couldn't directly come out and, you know, say... You can't sort of blame them as such. It was just sort of society. You look up a book and it says, see under sexual deviancy. Now, if that's very extreme talk about transsexualism. Transsexuals are people who have a contradiction between their self-experience idea about their sex and the bodily sex. In principle, there are two ways out. You could reconcile your own ideas about the body with what you have in your mind. But that's not possible. People cannot do it. So the only way of solving this problem is adapting the body to the self-perceived uh, sex, the gender identity. I just thought that the GP must have been blind or something. <laughs> Why did I survive so long without, you know, something... I thought I was the oldest person in the world to have survived with a disability, really, at one stage, you know. Because uh, I thought I should have cracked or crumbled or whatever, you know. But I, I made a powerful effort to try and conform for a good while, you know. Stop it there for a minute and tell me, what is it about music for you? Well, that, that was the old, um, the songs that were meant to have won the war, you know, the rallying songs and all, but there's something nice and plaintive about them. This, by the way, is Sandy. <laughs> Sandy is going to sing for you. Lydia's guinea pig. You're going to sing, Sandy? Go on. Go on, sing. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover Tomorrow just you wait and see going to give you a wash a little bit stinky today. To the sound of the songs that won the war, and with occasional contributions from Sandy, Lydia talked of her childhood and her parents. But I know we'll meet again some sunny day. They used to try and say, oh, you have a complex that you didn't have a father figure or something like this. I did have a, a father figure, and he was a real man's man. He loved shooting and all the rest of it. So he thought his duty would be to sort of toughen me up and bring me out and show me all his world. That would have been him trying his best. They thought it was a question of nurture, of course, if they tried to toughen me up and, you know, brought me for a pint or whatever, that let me go hunting and fishing, shooting and whatever, you know. And you would be far less disruption to society and to everything else if you just politely kicked the bucket. So that's the way it was. <laughs> it was lucky in the shed. It doesn't happen in our family. <laughs> the sexual differentiation disorders are things that go wrong with becoming a normal woman or a normal male. And it does go wrong. In one in every 2,000 newborns have a defect, while in every 5,000 has a serious defect. 
if you are born with a non-normal penis, if you are born with a bit of a penis as a woman, the help that must be given is of the same nature as transsexuals. You need a proper diagnosis, you need hormones, you need surgery. And in my view, transsexualism belongs in that spectrum of things that can go wrong in becoming man or woman. At boarding school, Lydia found she wasn't alone, though there was no solidarity in that. There were actually three of us that were transgendered within a number of years. One of them committed suicide, one of them was left in a terrible state. She was subjected to shock treatment and all sorts of things. That was the approach. One of them couldn't hide the femininity and was bullied and threatened and had a terrible time. You know, I tried to toughen up and defend myself. I didn't always manage it, but... I made an effort. And did you establish any affinity there? No. It's too much of a struggle for survival yourself. I remember chatting to one of them all right and trying to empathise, but there wasn't much you could do, really. You see, you were afraid of being taken as gay, as gay man, because that's what we weren't. So if we gay men, maybe might have been more sport or something, like you see in Yale University, or, you know, you might have got away with it. You know, you might have had a crush on your teacher or one of the lads or something, but you could do a subtle male bonding at some stage... Society seemed to mature into that a little bit quicker for the for the men that would survive reasonably well. But it was very difficult to, to be in, a, in an area where you couldn't, you know, if you were taken as, as a gay man, that's not what you wanted. Lydia moved on through life, but the inner conflicts remained. She doesn't talk comfortably about this time. Her memory of the key events is hazy. Might as well put a bit of music into your archive in case you want to break things up or something be like lovely. that. The wonderful thing about picking up the harmonic is you never know what tune is going to come into your head. For a long time, through college, a career, and then marriage, she strove to fit in. I did exactly like would be expected of me. I tried to conform. You know, anything for a quiet life, basically, because you do try and please your parents and your teachers. You're scared stiff of them anyway. You do. I mean, the basic survival instinct, if you're outnumbered, is to try and blend in or whatever, you know. But that gets to a stage when it you know, becomes impossible and then you're left with back to the corner. What the hell do you do, you know? Live or die. So I nearly died a few times and that was a frightening experience, so you have to carry on after that. In her 30s, Lydia underwent surgery for an existing leg condition. The experience of having a major operation proved to be an emotional turning point. So I had some severe surgery and I got really, I said, that's it. If I'm having big surgery like that, it should be all done. You think sort of, think you're going to wake up and everything will be perfect, but you end up, you know, <laughs> with a big scar on your leg and you can't walk, but you still have the same internal conflict. So that was a sort of a turning point. I never really recovered from that. I struggled on, but came to a stage then everything seemed to come in, you know, relationship disintegrated and uh, depression, I suppose, and uh, tears and every bloody thing. And uh, I tried to look for help then, but I still tried to carry on after that. I ended up in intensive care in, uh, in Nace. And then, of course, I had to go and follow up. And then I had no choice, either live or die, basically, get treatment or pack it in. Yeah, the end of the line. <laughs> we 
Finally, Lydia sought expert advice. Basically, I was told uh, there's no magic cure. It's not going to improve the older you get. No matter how much you try and conform, it's not going to improve. It's not going to go away. That's it. She began to actively consider surgery to change her sex. I wasn't even thinking straight. I was just thinking that if I got on the plane to England, no matter what, like <laughs> that they'd look after us. You know, I was even, I'd even in my diary, I'd flights written down and things like that. Totally, I was, wasn't thinking logically or anything at that stage. People come to the clinic and complain about this contradiction between their bodies and what they feel about themselves. And then they go into a diagnostic procedure. It's tested whether they are truly transsexual. And second, whether they are ready to transition from one sex to the other. It needs a situation in your life where you are able to make that transition quietly and in a dignified way. Lydia embarked on the transition from male to female. The first stage was to practice living as a woman. And did you find, when you started then presenting as a woman, did you find that in itself liberating? It is, but it's difficult. You're always afraid you're going to be embarrassed or whatever, you know. I mean, it's not that easy to do, obviously. You know, you're worried about your voice and, you know, how you portray yourself and everything else. Uh, Especially if you're isolated on your own, you know. It's, it's, It's a lonely place to be. But it is liberating just to be allowed to be yourself, all right, and just recognize yourself. If you are a 40-year-old man and you transition to the female sex, the first months of hormone treatment, you don't look very female, and you may not behave very female, and people in a bus or in the streets might make uh, painful jokes about you. you. You must be prepared that society, life, is not always nice to you, and if you can overcome that, you are ready for a transition. I mean, you cannot stay all your life inside and uh, live the life of a woman in your fantasy. It must be a life of a woman in the real world. I should really show you around the house, shouldn't I? This was in the, in the, the gay community news, which was um, a, a big step up for understanding. Just read out the headline there and tell me what that's for. Just becoming Lydia. So that's just, I suppose summarising the struggles of the disability that it's a tough a very tough track to follow In 1992 in order to finally become Lydia she went to England for surgery In fact I had my dignity as a woman the minute I had the surgery it was quite quite funny really because a nurse came in it's only just shortly after I had surgery, just a day, say, a day or two after. The matron someone just barged in. There was no sort of don't come in notice or whatever. And I was sort of looking after my wound or whatever. And uh, I got sort of a bit embarrassed. And she got embarrassed. And I, I said to myself, well, God, isn't this wonderful? My dignity as a, or my privacy as a woman is established sort of immediately. Do you know what I mean? That was amazing. And this was from a woman who would be just used to just barging into, in and out of the clinic, you know. So just to feel yourself, just to feel physically you were matching your, your, your brain. Or just to have the dignity of it, you're so quick. I thought it was just really something, you know. She was finally fully a woman. But Lydia found she had some catching up to do. 
Do you like um, yeah. makeup? Ah, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. I suppose a bit of the artist there too, you know. It's lovely when you don't wear it every day because then you get the nice contrast. You say, oh, you know, and it does make it certainly, you know, brightens you up and it, you know, makes a difference. And then, of course, renewing the lipstick is a sort of a ritual if you're chatting anybody or whatever, you know, oh, come on, we fix yourselves up or whatever, you know, it's always just, you know, a little bit of extra lip gloss or lipstick or something. It's always a, it's a sort of an excuse for, for a chat, you know, to fix this, this eye, is this eyeshadow too much, you know. But I suppose I missed a lot but when I was younger. I find it a bit of fun, <laughs> all the excitement about, about what, uh, what colour eyeshadow or does it go to your shoes or whatever, you know, it's quite funny. But Lydia soon discovered there was one aspect of her dignity as a woman still missing as she saw it. Her birth certificate still recorded her as male. Why do you need to change your documents? Why why do you need a, a birth cert? I needed a passport, but I didn't want to accept one with a blank on it. How do you mean blank? Blank for gender. They weren't going to put male or female on it. And then when it came to, please write down your name as appears on your birth cert, that came up in lots of documents and things that you were asked and then you weren't sure if you didn't put down male or female or whatever on, a, on an insurance claim or you know an insurance policy for your car if, would you be covered if it came to a census what do you write down you don't know how you're going to be treated by the law if you come foul of the law you don't know what sort of ridicule you're going to get when somebody asks you for identity sort of a death search you might get you're you're vulnerable the whole time your whole um, social identity is is uh, is open to ridicule. Lydia went to the Free Legal Advice Centre, Flack, and Flack went to Bill Shipsey, and together they took a case, a case seeking a birth certificate for Lydia Foy. It's not for the faint-hearted. It was a very hotly contested by the state. It was a very hard-fought battle. I suppose I was sceptical of our chances because it, it did seem that if one was born with male genitalia and if one had male chromosomes that it was understandable. I mean, what is a a doctor to do in terms of making a return when a child is born for a birth certificate? It was understandable that one would register that person or that baby uh, as a male. This was where Louis Gorin came in. The case ran for 14 days in the High Court before Judge Liam McKechnie and Louis Gorin came to Dublin to act as an expert medical witness. There's increasingly evidence that... uh the brains of transsexuals are not normal male brains in the case of a male-to-female transsexual and the other way around. The Dutch Brain Institute, with whom I collaborated, has shown that certain parts of the brain of a transsexual do look very much like the brain of a woman. This provided insights that in the brain differentiation, which normally corresponds with your genital configuration, Something has gone different in transsexuals. You could say that the sex of the brain has not followed the other specifications of sex. Or, in Bill Shipsey's words, the medical evidence in the case was largely with a view to us establishing that there was such a thing as one's brain sex, that there was a neurobiological basis for transsexualism. Because in the case of Lydia Foy, the the traditional determinants... Uh, gonads, genitalia, chromosomes, they were all suggestive that she was male. But she had this abiding conviction for as long as she could remember of always thinking of herself as female. Louis Gorin found his experience in the Irish court frustrating. I uh, had the idea it was a 
conversation between two deaf people. I had the inclination to get angry and say, I told you just two minutes before, why do you ask the same question? I'm happy to answer the same question if you have not understood that, but tell me if you have not understood it. I found it a weird experience. My impression was that they were very unwilling to hear the arguments. In any event, Liam McKechnie didn't buy the brain sex argument. He concluded... Though transsexualism is undoubtedly a recognised psychiatric disorder, it cannot, at least as of now, found its existence in neuroscience. Someday, with further research, this may be the case. But in my view, from the evidence adduced, that stage has not as yet been reached. The judge's sympathy went deeper than simply the case. Louis Goran's assessment, it seems, was unfair. Liam McKechnie had been listening, and he had been moved. Reading between the lines in Judge McKechnie's judgment, there was sympathy for the case. He just felt that our argument was, as it were, a a bridge too far or a step too far based upon the the laws that existed at that stage and on, on the scientific evidence. Prior to the start of this action, my understanding of transsexualism was, as I know now, utterly uninformative. The evidence in this case shows, without dispute or debate, that this is an established and recognised condition. That such condition is not influenced by sex orientation or driven by sexual pleasure. And that those inflicted suffer greatly. Usually for long periods, in relative isolation, frequently without understanding. Any person would be horrified at the mockery, derision and downright abuse which such individuals have to endure from time to time. Behind this legal case, therefore, there is a story of great human proportions, which, unfortunately, this judgment vehicle in a court of law is unable to adequately portray or properly recreate. When the golden sun sinks in the hills And the toil of the long day is o'er Sometimes I wonder where my home is, you know, so, you know, after so much displacement in my life, but you have to make do with what you got. This was a reject of the county council, this whole house, so it's half patched up, as you see, but you'd know by the clutter. I got a bit of a help with the central heating recently, at least it's a hell of a lot better than last winter anyway. And the grand and peaceful here, but plenty of distraction here now. A bit lonely at times, but that's why I have so much, <laughs> so much rubbish and <laughs> everything, and music and books and God knows what, you know. That keeps me going. In my little grey home of the But that wasn't the end of it, and the case would drag on for another eight years. Eventually, Lydia found herself back in the High Court. There had been developments in European and Irish law in the meantime, and the case had been returned to Judge Liam McKechnie. And this time, Lydia got the judgment she was waiting for. For those persons affected with this condition, there seems to be a burning desire to have their new sexual identity recognised. Not only socially, but also legally. 
This urge to have that identity fully and in all respects accepted by the law is at the core of the transsexual's plight. This explains why so many, often after painful surgical procedure, are still driven to publicly embark on a fight for legal identity, which frequently is humiliating and unsuccessful. Those at the forefront of such a quest many years ago faced a public and legal system which was much less sympathetic and much less understanding than hopefully what it is today. Everyone, as a member of society, has the right to human dignity and with individual personalities has the right to develop his being as he sees fit, subject only to the most minimal of state interference being essential for the convergence of the common good. Together with human freedom, a person, subject to the acquired rights of others, should be free to shape his personality in the way best suited to his person and to his life. And while this was all going on, what were you doing with your life? I mean, is it something you were waiting on? I suppose I I got a lot of reactive depression because, uh, you know, I was totally on my own, and that was very tough, you know. So I didn't have any support from anyone, really. I tried to distract myself. Uh, I joined uh, a women's group in a tie, which was for women that were sort of a bit marginalised. They might have been on their own out the country or whatever, like that. We did a few courses and things there. That helped a bit, a bit of dressmaking. And did you, when you were doing that, doing the classes mm. and with the women's group and stuff, did you make friends? Uh, on a fairly superficial basis, some of them would say, oh, we say hello to you, don't we? Thinking that that was like stuff for a medal, how brave they were. You know what I mean? It was, it was just that basic, you know. Uh, there were one or two um, that were very good and, and did their best, all right. And did anyone ever say to you, Lydia, I read in the paper and I understand now? That would be nice, or they say, oh, yes, I saw you in the paper and congrats or something. Um, but... Uh, no, people didn't sort of say, well, I understand now, sorry for giving you a rough time. They don't say that. People don't generally sort of apologise or that's one thing, it, it's a very rare item. Because it was very, very, very long. Like some people might have been a bit encouraging and would have got tired of it. And do you know what I mean, along the way? So you wouldn't have too many <laughs> people that would have stayed the course with you. But it's sort of understandable it went on so long, you know. <laughs> To have acted for somebody like uh, Lydia, who has been prepared to take on the state in a very unpopular uh, and unsympathetic uh, plaintiff, because lots of people would say, well, what's all the fuss about? Or weren't you a male when you were born? Uh, and for her to be prepared to put her head above the parapet and to to put herself out there and, and ultimately to prevail was one of the most, if not the most, satisfying legal victories and legal cases I've been involved in. It's a wonderful thing. So it's, it's wonderful treatment and everything, but um, the, <laughs> the, the social difficulties um, were horrendous. In As, as I'd said, I was sounding old, but in my day... <laughs> You know, uh, pretty horrendous. I was on my own. I was rejected of society number one. Last Irish witch to burn for a long time. <laughs> so, Did you ever sit down with somebody in your family or a friend or a neighbour in order to say to them, look, this is what it is and this is what's happening and this is how I feel? Uh, they usually say we know enough and that's it, run. <laughs> and they'd say you'd be an embarrassment to the family and all of that sort of stuff, you know.
wouldn't be good. You know, the same as they do for gay people or whatever, you know. Or to be a bad influence on young people or old people. <laughs> There's always an excuse. And that you're meant to, it's meant to be all about some sort of sexual deviancy or something like that. So, I mean, the, the easiest thing for them, that they, they don't really want to understand, you know. It's easier just to say, oh, I read about it in the <laughs> in the sun or the mirror or something. <laughs> it's easier for them, you know. While visiting Lydia in early April, there was a call to the door. It was the census enumerator. Can I take your name? asked the enumerator. Which name? said Lydia. And then Lydia explained, and the enumerator recognised her. I had a silly little protest at the census there. I said, what name? Do you want a legal name or an illegal name? Or do I exist? You know what I mean? I don't have any um, legal basic identity. And is that the end of the legal battle then? The legislation hasn't yet been brought in here to allow for Lydia to actually have her birth cert rectified. Nothing has yet been done in terms of legislation, although there has been some committees set up to look into what is required. It's coming and it's promised, but it hasn't happened yet. Is this something the state has shown any urgency on? You, you couldn't say they've shown any great urgency. I mean, they don't have to make it all up. There is very detailed legislation in England dealing with gender recognition. They have their own Gender Recognition Act, so we could borrow, if not steal, from the neighbouring jurisdiction if we wanted to do it. This was the, the Guinness Book of Records. Read that out for me there. The world's tallest foxgloves, measuring 10 feet 10 inches, was grown by Lydia Foy with High County Kildare in 1997. Were you actually in the Guinness Book? Oh, yes. <laughs> what were you doing trying to grow and, and succeeding the world's tallest foxglove? <laughs> I was just uh, experimenting as usual, just looking at various conditions that get them to get tall, you know, just... In nature, there's always hybridization going on. So how does hybridization apply to you? It's just that that word in a plant is respected. Do you think you are a hybrid in some way? Of course there must be hybridization between the brain and the body. Of course there is. Well, I mean, if you're programmed as a woman and parts of your body are not female, that's obviously <laughs> hybridization. Uh, treatment is wonderful, but you can't completely fix everything. I don't know what a transsexual is. If you can tell me, <laughs> listen, you can tell me. Does that mean somebody that's had treatment or been diagnosed? Or well, I don't know what it means. It's just a put-down term, as far as I can see. Calling somebody transsexual is it's just a marginalising term. I don't know what it's meant to mean. That would have been a, just used by tabloids to cause trouble now. You know, uh, there shouldn't be any labels attached after treatment. You know, you've lined yourself as best you can within the medical to your true self, so you shouldn't go around. That's the whole purpose of proper birth cert and, and proper privacy and everything, you know, which I have sacrificed at this stage. But that's the whole point. You shouldn't have any labels, um, you know. You should leave those all behind. When you've had your antibiotics for your bronchitis, hopefully nobody will say you're bronchitic for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know. 
So tell me now, what is the correct terminology? and what is The correct term is that my name is Lydia Foy. End of story. <laughs> I no longer need a label, thank you very much. <laughs> so there you are. Have you enough rubbish on that tape yet, no? Buckets. Bonfire of our troubles And we'll watch them blaze away And when they've all gone up in smoke clouds We'll never worry should they come another day And as the bonfire keeps on burning Happy days will be returning While the band keeps playing We'll let our troubles Bring them along and we'll turn them up, bring them along and we'll burn them up. Ha!